The Athletic. F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Gary hits Ferrari's turbo troubles at altitude and tackles the controversy about plans to lower F1 tyre blanket temperatures for 2023. But what could that mean for the tyre warmer band planned for the year after? And we answer a listener question about whether F1 design inspiration could be taken from a combination of the Mercedes Zero sidepod concept and the twin chassis Lotus 88. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw, but more importantly, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, a veteran of many decades in Formula One as a mechanic, car designer, technical director and journalist. How's things? Things are good, yeah. Um, winter's coming, so uh, I'm going to have to hang the shorts up soon. But other than that, um, yeah, things are okay, no problem. <laughs> yeah, I have to uh, retire the shorts, see how that impacts the quality of the uh, the chat on the tech podcast. But uh, fortunately, listeners don't have to deal with uh, with seeing that, so that's probably <laughs> a, a positive thing. Uh, but as always, we're going to start off with a blank sheet of paper for you to choose whatever topic has got you thinking this week. So what have you got, Gary? Something related to the Mexican Grand Prix or further afield? Well, I think that one of the things we saw in Mexico, obviously, was cooling. Um, it's, it's a major issue, and I think it's interesting to look a bit more in depth. And also the fact of, you know, we see quite a difference in the side pods on the Mercedes relative to uh, Ferrari or, um, or uh, Red Bull, or anybody else, in fact. But um, that obviously has an influence on the cooling and how you achieve that anyway through those, uh, through those small side pods. So basically, you've got an engine in there that's making a lot of horsepower, and it's rejecting heat, all the components, the battery pack, uh, the engine, the hydraulics, everything's rejecting heat. And to cool that, you need a certain cooling capacity within the car. Um, Mercedes have obviously pushed quite hard in uh, getting a cooling package that will work within their, as we call it, zero side pod package. But in general, everybody had, um, you know, again, in Mexico, because of the altitude, it's a 22%, I think, of thinner airflow. Everybody had more exit cooling ducts. Now, the reason you have the exit cooling duct is basically the, the inlet cooling duct um, in the front of the side pod is, is a very complicated area. It's really important for the flow into the underfloor, for the flow down around the side pod undercut, uh, the flow that goes over the top of the side pod. And um, you, you can't really mess with that area because there's all the crash structures and stuff in there. So it's very, very difficult to change it, make it bigger or smaller. And um, it's not as effective either as the exit. You know, you can't, you can't, I always say you can't push air through the radiator. You have to pull it through the radiator. So the, the exit needs to be um, creating a low pressure area behind the radiator to pull the air through that radiator. So uh, the cars are quite different in the concept. Say the Mercedes got sort of a vertical radiator inlet um so they, they have very little top uh to that radiator duct so the the spillage that's there whenever the uh radiator packs up because the radiator will not flow at you know 300 320 30 kilometers the radiator will not flow all the flow that's going at it it will pack up and some of it will go somewhere else and that somewhere else that it goes is whatever low pressure area area you have around the inlet so to me in the Mercedes, for example, um, they've got quite an opening. They're quite a large part of their radiator duct is relative to the leading edge of the floor, which will be a low pressure area. So when that radiator packs up, um, the flow overflow as such would tend to go underneath the car or a majority of it would tend to go underneath the car. 
Take Red Bull as an example of the, of the opposite. Their radiator duct has got um, the top of it is is further rearward than the bottom of it. So their uh, spillage flow would go over the top of the side pod, not affecting the underfloor. So it would be more consistent. Um, Ferrari, they've got a, a, a large, a larger and more aggressive undercut, I suppose you might call it, below the side pod, between the bottom of the radiator duct and the, and the floor intake. So their spillage would either be pulled down there or because their the radiator inlet is like a letterbox, going rearwards, I suppose you might call it, the the uh, excess flow could spill around that that end, the end of it really, the outside end of it, so that it doesn't really affect the underfloor again. So we take all those things into account, and if we do assess that the Mercedes, in normal circumstances, would have more spillage into its underfloor, uh, that Red Bull wouldn't have as much, they'd have more spillage over the top of the side pod, and Ferrari have more spillage around the side of the side pod. Then we go to Mexico, where there's, 20, 22% less uh, density to the airflow. So, in effect, the radiators are the same. The airflow density is down. So, the, the the density of the radiator, the blockage of the radiator relative to that that flow is less. So, you get less cooling from it. Nobody puts in sort of more dense radiators for a, an altitude circuit. They just use the same radiators. So, in Mexico, I would say that uh, Red Bull have the same characteristics. The air will still spill over the top. The spillage, but it'd be a lot later on the straight where that spillage goes over the top of the side pods. Ferrari would have the same where it goes down the side of the side pod. Uh, and Mercedes, because there's less spillage, um, there will be less going under the underfloor, hurting the underfloor or disturbing the underfloor or or uh, reducing the, the downforce that it, that it does. So there's something to be learned from everything, I think. And I think the cooling in, in Mexico is a typical example of learning how that changed the airflow characteristics. And the, you're talking about the mass flow. You're talking about you know 22% difference flow. So that's that creates less downforce because the air is thinner for everybody. But in Mercedes's case, it's not so bad because it doesn't upset the underfloor. Um, and I can so I can see reasons why uh, Mercedes were pretty competitive there. Um, you know, to be honest, they were they were right up there. You know, ready to to do a, a pretty good job, but didn't quite succeed in the end. Uh, I don't quite understand why they used the tire strategy they did because they could have ran that medium for much longer and ran the softs at the end of the race, which is what George Russell wanted to do, but the team overruled him. So again, Mercedes should come back from that race, and if they look deeply into it, I'm sure they can find. Uh, reasons for them being competitive, um, but I think you know you have to build a car that's good for all occasions, and and obviously that's what we're seeing with the Red Bull. It's a it's more of a car for all occasions, qualifying the race, fast circuits, slow circuits, whatever. You know, Mexico is a funny place because, as I say, that because of the turbo, you can generate more or less the same horsepower from the engine. Um, Ferrari struggled with that because of their turbo problems, as as I think that we talked about in the last podcast. You know, they seem to run a smaller turbo than the Honda. And because of that, they have to run it faster. And obviously, you know, it's very easy when you're running a turbo at high, very high speed. There's a maximum RPM of 125,000 RPM. Now, 125,000 RPM is, is like a sewing machine going. It's flat out. So uh, any room, any error there at the top end of it and the design of it, you know, could, could cause really reliability problems. And I think Ferrari had to bag off a little bit just to make sure of the reliability issues. But if you take Mexico, because of the long straight, the high-speed straight and the high altitude, um, cooling is, is difficult because you're, you're, um, 
you've got big high power, you've got uh, the long straight to help you cooling, but you've got thin air. You know, it would be 10 times worse, let's say, if uh, Monaco was at altitude like Mexico because the circuit's so slow. You wouldn't get that cooling benefit from the speed. So, again, let's go back to the learning something. You know, sometimes you need to scratch your head a little bit and think why and, uh, and look laterally at all these problems. And I think Mercedes will have learned a little bit about it, but they definitely don't have a car for all occasions yet. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the, the various factors that, that shift the competitive order for Mexico because we talk about the altitude and it's so out of whack with the rest of the season because you've got Interlagos, which is around the 700 metres mark. Red Bull Ring is a little bit below that, but still a little bit of altitude. But this is basically three times that, so it's a massive outlier. And that's also, I guess, one of the reasons why the race there tends to be a little bit sedate because everybody is managing on the temperatures because of that that thing of designing a car for the for the average of the season so how do you approach that when designing a car in a cooling capacity when you've got the whole spectrum of circuits you've got i guess the majority sort of clumped in the middle where you can just tweak it that so do you just have to say right well we're a little bit undercooled for mexico but we can't afford to have a car design that's carrying around that extra cooling capacity potential for the rest of the year so how do you work out how close you go to what you need for mexico and how much can be dealt with by just management um, well, it's all a compromise, but you you know you normally would look at the um, taking the all the circuits average speed because it's the average speed that, help, that does the cooling. There's no one sort of point really where you're um, where you're going to uh, just cool the car efficiently. It's the average speed over a lap that gives you the average cooling over that lap. You might look at that compared to um, to engine heat rejection, which is is relative to engine RPM. So. You know, again, you might try and come up with a spreadsheet that gives you um, heat, uh, gives you average speed relative to high RPM because that's when you want the cooling to be at its most efficient. But if you take it the simple way, just average speed for the circuits for the year, that will give you somewhere along the middle. There'll be a peak somewhere in the middle there because there's more, you know, average speed of let's say 240 kilometers an hour circuits than there is of an average speed of 150 and or. 300 so you're cooling you would focus your cooling um for that average speed 250 kilometers an hour let's say and then each side of that you try to give yourself a little bit of a window for bigger exits for the for the circuits where um the cooling wouldn't be so good like i.e monaco or mexico because of the altitude and circuits like monza where that average speed's higher where you're you can close the cooling down a little bit so you're you know you get your your cooling requirement for the majority of circuits sorted first and that's what you should conceive your car around um if you don't you're telling yourself lies if you conceive your car around um cooling for monza for example then you're going to get a hit on 15 other circuits whereas if you conceive your car around the average of silverstone to spa to whatever you know that sort of thing then you'll get decent cooling for 15 or whatever circuits and you'll suffer a little bit either side of that so that's all you can do. And then you go there and, and you put your best package for that circuit on. It might not be enough to, to, to get the cooling to what you want, uh, but it's in the right direction. And then it's about managing it and just, you know, running the engine to create the heat that you need to cool. So you just have, maybe have to back it off a little bit. But it's it's one of those sort of things. It is, it is the prime mover in a good car design to make sure that your, your cooling um, doesn't, destroy your car whenever you need a bit more or a bit less um so it's it's always always the prime mover in the car concept and 
packaging. And I guess we also saw with Ferrari, which you referenced there with their, their turbo troubles, they had a pretty awful weekend. They were struggling with balance as well. The ride over the curbs, particularly those sweepers in the middle, looked pretty horrible uh, at times. But that point with the turbo, obviously we know they've got the, the slightly smaller turbo. That's helped in terms of having that kick off corners this year. So I guess that's another example of where those compromises are made. And you just have an outlier like this that doesn't work well for them because the the uh, that inability to drive the turbo as hard as they want to because you can run the uh you can spin it up to 125,000 rpm which is yeah. an enormous speed and obviously they yeah. can't cope with that shaft speed as they discovered in in Austria so how much of what ferrari struggled with was down to the compromises they'd built in and how much down to other factors they'd not considered i guess they couldn't drive the turbo as hard as as they needed to uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 they're all decisions that you have to make on the way. Um, I'm I'm a little surprised that Ferrari have gone that route with a smaller turbo because definitely, you know, the smaller turbo is more responsive. It'll spin up faster. Um, even, you know, even it'll spin up with less, using less electrical power to spin it up. But even without the electrical power, it'll spin up faster with the exhaust gas flow. So you'll get less turbo lag as such with um, with a small turbo. With a large turbo, like I believe the Honda for sure has, um, we you'll get more potential turbo lag. So you might need to use more electrical power. But it's a balancing act between the power you can get out of the turbo itself by increasing the pressure in the plenum chamber against the loss of electrical power that you're getting by spinning that by getting that turbo up to that speed. And that's the compromise. You know, there's there's no there's no you can't you can't get any nothing for nothing. So as I say, the the benefit that Ferrari have coming off the court and getting the turbo working quicker would be if you took a snapshot, you know, coming around a corner and putting the throttle on at the same time. The Ferrari would be, um, uh, you know, at a higher engine power um, or higher car speeds, let's say, coming off a corner than the Red Bull. But then the Red Bull will keep going for longer. And then you see that, you know, the Red Bull carries the speed at the end of the straight. Ferrari run out of steam at the end of the straight. And that's one of the things that has made Red Bull again, you know, a, a package for for all all occasions. Um, but you you can only do a certain amount, you know. That again, the Ferrari um, they're committed to that philosophy now, so they're they're going to have to live with it and take the benefit out of it for all the other races that they can. So it's 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 a compromise. It's a bit like you know, again, if you look at the the Red Bull, for example, the amount of anti anti squat anti dive. Uh, that they have on their suspension geometry. Again, that's a compromise because small benefits, but large benefits as far as the aerodynamic platform is concerned. But if you get a slippery track, you know, you, the car has no feeling. The car goes dead because the anties are so high on it that a slippery track, the car doesn't generate the, the grip to actually need that support. So if you had a, a slippery track, you would go for less anties uh, on the suspension just to give the driver that little bit more feel. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think that, you know, Verstappen is so good. He he doesn't really use that feel. He, he actually just uses his own talent. Um, but if you had slippy tra- tracks, you would go for less antis. If you had high, high grip tracks and the soft tires, you'd go for, you know, higher antis to, to support the car under braking um, and under acceleration. And so everything's a compromise from, from the first nut and bolt you put into the car. To the to the last nut and bolt you put in the car, everything is you know an actual compromise. So it's uh, it's interesting to see some of this popping up, and again with the rules the way they are, it's very difficult to see changes of any dramatic fashion for for teams that have got problems. And 
obviously into Lagos, we said 700 metres. Do you expect to see similar phenomena striking there, but just reduced? Yeah, I think it will be reduced. I mean, obviously, I think I think Ferrari's problem caught them a little bit of a surprise in Mexico. Um, so I think they'll, they'll sort of scratch their head a little bit differently um, going to um, going to Brazil. Uh, but in in general, we've seen it all year long. You know, the cars that are good are good. Uh, no matter where you go, they're they're always good. So if Ferrari do creep back up again towards the Red Bull, um, which I would I would expect, then. That's fine. That's what we would expect out of it. But I think it will still be the Red Bull, Ferrari, and Mercedes fight coming on. You know, again, as I keep saying, Mercedes, Mercedes is still learning a lot, and I'm surprised it's taken them so long to learn a lot because I know I'm sitting outside here watching it on TV and keeping an eye on things. But sometimes, you know, you can't see the wood for the trees if you're in the middle of the forest. So sometimes you have to step outside of it a little bit and look back in again. And I tell you what, it doesn't do any harm. You can see you can see a lot from looking from the outside. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for a, a different perspective. Well, our main topic today is tyres. If you cast your mind back to season one of this podcast, Gary interviewed Pirelli Motorsport boss Mario Isola about this year's 18-inch tyres. But this time we're looking a little bit more ahead. And Gary, there's been a lot of talk about the upcoming tyre blanket ban for 2024. But before we get into that, should we start off with some of the basics? Because we're so used to seeing tyre blankets. Everyone knows roughly what they do, but their use is a real science, isn't it? So beyond the obvious fact that they heat tyres, what, what do they really do and how has their use evolved over the years? Well, it's an interesting thing because I actually was very interested in heating tyres whenever I was directly involved in F1. Uh, because to me, it's the four black bits that connect the car at the ground. And unless you give them the best treatment possible you end up not getting the best from them. So and I think we've seen that quite a lot through the years. The tyre blankets from when you know we were, we started at the beginning of the 90s, it was just basically an electric blanket that you wrap around the tyre. It had uh, heating elements in the, in the tread area and heated the tread up to whatever temperature you want. And we got a bit more excited about it than that because we did play around quite a lot testing uh, during... Because, because we were involved in... in um, in the pre-qualifying, we played around quite a lot in testing to to see how the tyres heated up. Because, you know, pre, pre-qualifying at 8 o'clock in the morning, um, just getting everything ready for the pre-qualifying was, was quite difficult. Um, and we discovered that really, the hotter you got the tread of the tyre, um, the worse the tyre grip level was to the driver, you know, and then relatively to that, the lap time. So we started to evolve with... Um, was a company that made the blankets, uh, tire blankets that were separated. They had two elements. They had the sidewall element um, in the blanket and they had a tread element on the blanket. And we ended up, you could put the sidewall element up to like 120 degrees. The tread element would be set at about 60 or 70. So you would keep the tread uh, cooler than the sidewall. We would start the blanket up by putting the heat into the sidewall first to get the sort of rim temperature up. And then you'd optimize the tread temperature right at the, at the end. Um, because I, I felt that really the, the tires are made, they're manufactured, and then they're put in a big oven and they're sort of heat cycled. The Pirelli old tire companies then run them up through a heat cycle and they stop at a certain point. So it's, it's temperature against time to a certain level. And on the, on the track, let's say the tires run at like, you know, average ish, about 100 degrees centigrade. Um, if you go above 100 degrees centigrade in the blankets, you're actually 
hardening the tire, the compound of the tire. And that's the last thing you want to do. So we felt that you wanted to get tires coming up towards that temperature and then getting them on the car and, and the, getting the last 10, 15, maybe 20 degrees while they're on the car as opposed to getting them up there before you get them on the car, which meant the rubber was as, as soft as possible from that compound. And we did quite a few back-to-back tests here and there, and, and we, you know, we proved that. Um, later on in life, going through the mid-90s, then teams started to do things to heat uh, because the company we worked with started selling it to everybody. And then teams started getting the blankets made so that they heated the rims. The, the blanket fitted inside the room and had elements so they could heat the rims as well and not heat the tire tread. Um, so it got itself carried away a bit. And then uh, you know, the FIA stepped in and sort of said, look, you know, this, this is silly. Let's just make it a one-element uh, tire blanket because it gets so complicated. So then it was put back again to, to a standard tire, to a standard uh, warming blanket. And now you have a, a situation where you know, you're heating the tire up to a level um, that Pirelli de- define. Uh, this year it's 70 degrees front and rear. There was a time when it was like 100 front, I think, and 80 rear or something like that. And the reason they got that temperature is because people were complaining that the fronts weren't working when you left the pits. So they put the fronts up to a higher temperature. Um, but again, in my book, that cooks the front tyre. So you have to get less grip. And then you want a higher temperature in the front because you've got less grip. So you're sort of giving yourself a situation if you get up to 120 front and 80 rear where you've got a, a harder tyre on the front of the car than you have on the back of the car initially. So what would you expect but understeer? Um and again, so the 70 was a good compromise, front and rear, for everybody. But the pressures then go up with that because the, the out-of-blanket temperature the out of blanket temperature at 70 and the tyre pressures uh, need to be hand-in-hand hand as such. Pirelli are very worried about their tyre structure, so they keep the pressures, the, the start pressures, quite high. Um, and again, there was this plan in, in Austin where they went down to the 50 degrees for the tyres in preparation for the no tyre blanket. But that's, uh, you know, the drivers complain about it. Now, yeah, it's okay. I did see the cars moving around a bit and sliding around a bit. The last thing we want is crashes, but for the for the 20 most professional drivers in, form, in, uh, in the world to sort of complain about, oh, we can't go down there because we're going to crash, I think it's, uh, it's pretty stupid. Um, they shouldn't crash. You know, a GP2 or Formula 2 doesn't have tyre blankets and they manage it pretty well so a, a resolution needs to be found between Pirelli the FIA Formula 1 the drivers as to what's the right compromise the thing I don't like about no blankets is the, the amount of cost there is and actually the laps you do to warm the tyre up that for me is the big thing so if it was me my decision as I wrote in my article a few weeks ago you know a lot less blankets per team and allow them to put in a reasonable temperature um, would be the best solution to having um, a situation where you're not doing laps to wasting lots and lots of money. You're still reducing the environmental impact by having a lot less blankets and uh, and have a, a, a limit on the time they're allowed to be on for. But when did Sense ever come into these decisions? And obviously the, the changes on the, the tyre blankets is partly motivated by the cost of the blankets, but also by the amount of electricity consumed to, uh, to power them. So we've got two different things. We've got the 23 and the 24 plans. The 24 plans is the complete tyre blanket ban. We'll be going on to that in a bit more depth in a moment. But 
for 23, the plan was to drop it to 50. As you said, it's part of this glide path that Pirelli had suggested. It does look like that's going to be dropped now. But does 20 degrees, 70 down to 50, really make such a big difference? Because it doesn't sound like much in the in the grand scheme of things. But teams have said that because of the way the cars are, they're just not designed to be operated that they struggle with the brakes etc so there's the problem of getting the particularly the fronts up to temperature at all and in fact um, Tom McCulloch for example at Aston Martin made the point that it was a very expensive way of heating tyres if you need to do three or four laps like they did in Austin in order to get the, the temperature in it so how do you see that that seemingly small step can you put into context how big that really is that 20 degrees well, I'm agreeing with Tom, really, there. That, that's my argument, is that how much it costs you to warm the tyres up. It's, it is one of those things where when it's the same for everybody, it's the same for everybody. So you, you just have to come up with the right balance, I think, of, of what you're going to try and do. But to, to inflict upon the teams um, the need to do two or three, maybe four laps to get the tyres up to temperature so they work, the, the financial cost of that with the cost cap is, is, is high. So you've got to you got to sort of back it out a little bit and say right, what's the best solution to help an environment um, and achieving the goal of potentially making racing a little bit more random, I suppose you might call it. Um, and whenever we were working with, whenever I was working, you know, full frontal with F one as such, we we would never put the tires on for for hours. They would always be on. You'd try to work out when you wanted to, to use the tyres. So you'd say, right, okay, qualifying is between 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock, whatever it be. So we need a, a, a new set of tyres for 2 o'clock. We need another new set for 2.15 um, and so on. And you would put the tyres on an hour before that, that point. So the temperature was rising. The temperature was always heading up towards where you wanted them to be. So you would you'd end up putting the tire on, as I say, onto the car a few degrees below what it was going to work at on the track and try and catch it like that because you got more grip out of the tire. Um, if you were plus or minus five degrees, it didn't really matter too much. Or if you were minus five degrees, sorry, it didn't really matter too much as long as you accommodate it within the, the pressures, which you could do then. So there's, there's, there's more to this black tire than just heating it up and getting grip out of it, uh, sticking it on the car and, and away you go. And I think we see that even currently where you've got, um, you know, some sometimes a car, a driver and a car combination will get the tire working very well, very quickly, very easily. And the same, same weekend, the same session, another set of tires won't work for them correctly. And I think that's because of the randomness of time that the, the tires get left in the blankets. So from my point of view, I would go, as I say, less blankets, go down, each, each driver has, I think, 10 sets of blankets available to them. Um, go down to something like four, which will cover any session quite practically. Um, maximum temperature of the 70 degrees, and they can only be in there for an hour. And I think it'll do everybody a favour in the fact that when you switch the blanket on, it switches itself off in an hour's time. End of story. So you have to plan when you're going to use them. But the difference between 70 and 50, as far as the uh, the tyre is concerned, is is a moot point because I think the teams will always complain about anything that knocks them off their what they believe is their best solution to a problem. And they'll always knock it. So I think you're trying to find the balance of compromise there. But again, as I say, the most expensive thing is in Formula 1 is the actual running of a Formula 1 car. So you don't want it to be going around doing nothing for three or four laps before you can actually get the information you require. Um, but going back again, 
if it's the same for everybody, it's the same for everybody. Yeah, it does seem that at least they're going roughly in that direction. You said it looks like it's going to be uh, 70 degrees for two hours, which is what they did in Mexico, rather than the currently permitted yep. three hours. So that makes uh, at least a sensible compromise for, for that. But the big challenge, of course, is going to be 2024. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. But let's talk about that blanket ban overall. How substantially different do you think these tyres are going to have to be? Because they're going to be, what, I don't know, 20 degrees when they head out on track. Why is it so challenging to warm up the tyres? How different will they need to be in order to to operate everything from 20 up to, I guess, probably 120, 130 degrees at, at peak? Big pressure change as well. So how that impacts the footprint. So just how different would a product for no tyre blankets have to be to what we've come to realise as a normal F1 tyre in recent times? I think whenever we look at the tyres that we've got, um, we've really gone from, you know, when, when we had Goodyear, they were a, a cross-ply tyre. And then along came Michelin with their, um, f- you know, full radial tyre as such. And we had Bridgestone, I think, for a while, were in the middle. Now, the, the, the it's hard to explain, just black and white, but but simply if you take the, the majority of the the carcass of the tyre on a cross-ply tyre goes across the tyre. On a radial tyre, the majority of it goes radially around the tyre. Um, so the, the cross-ply tyre tends to um, balloon. You know, it will blow up when you get higher pressures, uh, so it reduces the contact patch. Um, that was quite good in one way because it meant that at low ride height, uh, the, the, at the low speed, the car would act to be lower than at, uh, at high speed because the tyre would balloon and the centrifugal force would also make it balloon even more. But that's a different problem. But the, radial, the, the Michelin radial would stay, had a very flat tread. The contact patch would stay very consistent um, with pressure changes. So the sidewall itself was quite, uh, was quite weak and um, the tyre would move laterally quite a lot on the sidewall, but the tread itself would stay there stay fairly, fairly, uh, fairly stable and fairly flat to the track. Uh, meant camber change and all your sort of character suspension kinematics had to be sorted out really to, to suit that happening. Um, whereas now we've got the Pirelli. We had the Pirelli last year with the 13-inch rims, which you saw on TV, um, balloon quite a lot uh, uh, and, and move around quite a lot. Whereas the, on the 18-inch rims, they're not quite as bad. So the 18-inch rim is a is a is a is a step in the right direction to get a more stable tire footprint, but that's all you know, going to have to be done on the construction because we're not changing from 18-inch rims to to 20-inch, for example. So I think Pirelli are going to have to go more more radial to get that flat footprint um, consistently with a bigger variation in tire pressure. So the tire pressure itself. Um, will not change the uh, the ballooning on the tread, and that's the thing they're going to have to do. You know, as you say, you're going from ambient of twenty or something like that, um, potentially to 100 and 120 degrees. The change in pressure in that is, is going to be quite high. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see you know 10 psi difference. 
So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big compromise. But the tower construction has got to do all that. The tower construction needs to be such that it will leave the the, the contact patch at a certain area um, and be stable up through its as the pressures go higher and higher. So all of the the work needs to be able to be done in the sidewall of the tire, which is why Michelin, you know, way back had a very uh, feeble, a very weak sidewall um, and a very stiff tread. Um, but, you know, we don't have that at the minute. At the moment, the, the carcass is sort of a compromise between the sidewall and the tread. It's more of a, a blended uh, together structure as opposed to sort of separate structures connecting up. And what about the knock-on effects to the cars? You mentioned the suspension and the way that works the tyre was important, but also brakes, because they're a, the way they're warmed up when you go out is very important. If you're so contained when you first go out and you can't drive the brakes properly, then you've got problems, haven't you? So how much of a knock-on effect is this going to have on the cars to adapt for 2024? Um, a lot of a knock-on effect, but it's, it's, it's the same. You know, it's just the same. It's just a slightly different problem. You know, whenever you take the brakes, for example... You know, if they're too cool, if they're less than 350, 400 degrees, uh, you won't get any stopping power. Um, and if they go above like a thousand degrees, then the wear rate gets very high. So it's about keeping them in that little window, um, keeping them hot enough when you go out to get the brakes to work. Because if they are cool, um, they they basically don't work and you can very easily glaze the discs or glaze a disc, which is when you, the disc gets so shiny that there's no sort of surface friction between the, the disc and the pad. So you need to just make sure that doesn't happen. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult thing. Uh, it'll always be a difficult thing, but the cars are more complicated now in the fact that you have 100% hydraulic driver-inflicted force on the front brakes and probably about 20% um, driver-inflicted force on the rear brakes. The rest is done by the, uh, by the MG UK um, charging up the battery. So you've got a half, you got sort of three-quarter electrically braked rear axle and a, a 25% um, hydraulically braked rear axle and 100% braked front axle. And that's the thing that makes the, the difference. The compromise is very difficult because if you go out uh, and you're charging up your battery, for example, because you, you have to, um, then your, your rear brakes don't, hydraulically don't really have to work, but your front brakes do because your, your uh, recharge is, is working 100%. So if the brakes in the rear are uh, are rocking up, then it's a problem. So you know you don't want that because you spin. So the, the fact the drivers then put a lot of balance to the front to make the hydraulic effort operate the front harder, um, and the electrical is used for the rear axle. So it's the, the balance of compromise between the electrical and the hydraulic pressure that... Um, electrical um, braking and the hydraulic pressure that's the difficult thing it's not the brakes themselves it's not the the function of the brakes or the function of the brakes to the tire it's a matter of getting the temperatures right and the di brake disc which changes quite dramatically whereas the braking effect of the electronics does not change it's it's constant so it's just getting all that balance right it's very very difficult and, and some teams that struggle with it some drivers struggle with it um but they're, you know, again, it's the same old thing. Every day and every way you learn something new. So I'm sure there's a way of, uh, of getting that balance in a better position. Now, in terms of what happens from here, Pirelli say it's still all flat out, all systems go on the tyre blanket band tyres for 2024. We should note, actually, it's FIA and F1 that have pushed the tyre blanket band. It's not Pirelli jumping up and down saying they want it. But 2024 is not that far away. We're probably not going to see the first track test of a, a, 
blanketless tyre products until February. There's going to be knock-on effects, as we've said, on on cars, brakes, etc. So I can see a situation, given the pushback there was for the 50-degree drop, which is a, a smaller change, I can see we'll get to a point sometime, I don't know, April next year, when people are really pushing back hard on this. Yeah, and yeah. The, the tire blanket ban either gets postponed or, uh, or or delayed. So do you, do you think that's the way that things will go? Because that timeline is short and Pirelli, of course, is limited on, on testing. Yeah. They talked about whether they can use an F2 car or a super formula car, for example, for additional testing. But Mario Isola was saying at the weekend to me, unfortunately, there's just nothing that really works a tire like an F1 car. So we need as much proper F1 car running as, as possible within reason. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm saying that 2024 is getting close. Uh, 2023 is just around the corner. Anything to do with the tyres on the cars. We've seen we've seen problems in the past, both with Michelin in, in America at uh, the US Grand Prix. And, uh, you know, Pirelli obviously had problems a few years ago. So tyres are something you don't want to take risks on. You want to make sure that they're up to the job. And... The thing that makes them up to the job or not up to the job is the, the construction, the carcass of the tyre. The rest of it, the compound, you know, it might blister, it might grain, it might do something, but it's not structurally going to fail. Whereas you don't want to be taking big risks on the on the carcass. So we're nearly in 2023. I would expect that those tyres, non-blanket tyres, to be arriving in 2023 for, for some serious tests on... Um, an optimization, but that isn't going to happen because you know it's it's more races. Uh, there's more commitment from the teams. There's more commitment for tire supply. All sorts of reasons for it. So that this is one of the reasons why I'm saying just just simply say each car, each driver can have four sets of blankets. Maximum temperature is seventy degrees. The maximum time the blanket could be on there on for is one hour. You've satisfied everybody. You've helped to for the environment. You've reduced the amount of tire blankets you have. Um, every team will still have will have at least four sets of tire blankets available. So there's no big drama there. You've reached the compromised temperature of seventy degrees, so it takes that away from any control you would have over what is a warm tire and what isn't a warm tire if you don't have a blanket at all. Um, you've put in a one hour stipulation. There has to be a timer on it that stops it after one hour. End of story. You know the problem solved. It doesn't mean that Pirelli have got to reinvent the wheel or even the tire. Um, but it means that the, the problem is solved. The teams know what to work with, and everybody knows what to work, to work with, and everybody knows how much to save in the budget. You save a huge amount of the environmental impact by reducing from 10 sets of blankets to four. Four is just a number in space. I just think four lined up there, good for qualifying. You've got one for, for Q1, you know, one set for Q2, one set for Q for Q3, um, and a fourth set just in case. Um so you've got, you know, you can do the right thing for everybody by doing, making decisions like this early on. And you, so you don't have to just wipe it out completely in, in one foul swoop, um, like the FIA want to do with the no tire blankets. It's, it's, it's a broad brush to achieve a, not, much, not much less than what you would do if you just limit the amount of blankets, the amount of time you can put them in for. Um, and, you know, you don't need to put the wets and intermediates in, in blankets. Yes, they do help. Obviously, they do help when you go out there and the tyre's warm. But it's the same for everybody with that sort of thing. You don't have to have them in blankets. So only, only slick tyres, maximum of four sets per driver, maximum of 70 degrees centigrade, maximum of one hour in the blankets, uh, or the blankets switched on, and 
you've done a very good job, I think. Yeah, and I can certainly see it going that way, or at least partially that way, because I do have some sympathy for Pirelli, because ever since they've come into F1, they've been very limited on testing. Yeah. For this, they need to run not just many days, but across a wide range of circuits. And you know, there's been recent criticism about the wet tyres, but the wet testing opportunities have been so limited. There was one test they had at Fiorano, but because of when it was in the year, they soaked the track artificially, but it was 40 degree track temperature still. So that that's not real yeah, wet yeah, conditions no, because no. You, you don't generally get that. And they are going to do some more work on the, the wets and intermediates over, uh, over the winter. But do, do you have some sympathy for Pirelli? Because it's very easy to kick them and say, oh, Pirelli can't do this, Pirelli can't do that. But they are in a difficult situation. I uh, I have sympathy with them, yes. It is a very, very difficult situation unless you can properly test. You know, there there is no way that you can simulate wet weather testing practically for the ambient, for the whole thing. You know, a wet day at Spa can be so much different from a wet day in, in you know, Singapore or wherever. Um but anyway, I yeah, I remember doing the, a wet test at Valencia, at the circuit in Valencia, and uh, that was a, you know the proper racetrack. And uh, they, they were going to wet the track for the next day. We'd done some dry weather running, all good stuff. And there was four or five teams there. And so they wet the track in the morning for the uh, for the wet test. And we all put wet tyres on, went out of the pits and spun immediately at the first corner, just straight out of the pits. You could not go around the first corner, you know, 10 miles an hour in a Formula 1 car uh, on the wet tyre, just absolutely zero grip. And we found out later that they had actually wet the track with tankers, which is fine, um, but they'd taken the, 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 the water out of the pond in the middle of the circuit, which was full of algae. So we just sprayed sort of green algae on the track, which made it rather slippery. So wet weather simulation testing is, is a very, very difficult a very very difficult thing to do even you know the, the fact of tyre testing with no blankets slick tyre testing with no blankets is a very difficult thing to do unless you can do it at nearly every race meeting next year 2023 you need to have a couple of cars that you might allocate and there's nothing wrong with the top three in the championship let's say or the middle three in the championship bringing together, bringing a third car to each race and letting their reserve driver go out in, in free practice one and two. Two test tyres for Pirelli. You know, that could be a third car. No data for the team run by a separate entity or whatever you like to call it. Um, there is solutions to all the problems if they really want to do it. And as I say, the, 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 the quick solution for me is just less blankets, less temperature, less time. But there is a solution to it. You don't have to put all the pressure onto the... the actual race team and the race drivers you can even pick you know half of the races the european races or half of the races where the uh, the top teams show up with a third car and uh, even if it's a year old car it doesn't matter um it would be still to the same effective rules and uh give them lots of data but there's there's simple things ways of doing things and there's difficult thing ways of doing things and formula one is very very good at finding the most difficult way i think Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please do send us in a question and we might well answer it on a future episode. You can either write us a question and email it to podcasts at the hyphen race.com, podcasts at the race.com with a hyphen, or record a voice note remembering to include your name that we can play on the show. Today's question is from Dave Hyman in California, who says, I wonder if there's room in the regulations for someone to take 
inspiration from Mercedes Zero Pod concept and the Lotus 88 twin chassis to create a more powerful and tunable downforce element. It seems to me that they could basically turn the entire side pod into an enclosed wing, which should really accelerate the airflow, and it would not be easy to see what's happening because it's all hidden behind the bodywork. Thanks for all the fantastic technology insights. I can't wait to see what you folks come up with next. Well, Dave, um, interesting idea, but the regulations are, are now so tight that it's uh, very, very difficult to do those sort of things. I go back to the days whenever um, there was a, a, a Formula One Grand Prix at Long Beach, so I go back a fair amount of time to uh, in Formula One, and I saw all those things you were talking about with the, the twin chassis Lotus and whatever. Um, you know, those were the days when you could go out and, and design something different. The regulation book was you know, half a dozen pages, um, and anything else then was fair game, like the Brabham fan car, for example, the Lotus Ground Effect car, all that stuff. But at, at the end of the day now, you, you can't really do it. So to do something in the side pod area that has a, a, a wing as, it, as such, a freestanding wing in there, I suppose you could look and say that Aston Martin started off this season a bit like that. They had a huge undercut below the, the side pod itself down to the floor. So you had a an independent, potentially an independent wing section. Um, but, you know, bodywork has to be rigid. It has to be connected up in certain areas. It has to have certain radii, you know, male and female. It's all tightened up so dramatically that there isn't really room to, to do something that you could classify as a wing uh, and end up getting forces out of it. You know, if you, as you say yourself there, uh, it could uh, not easily see what's happening. Um, because it's all hidden behind the bodywork. If it's all hidden behind the bodywork, unfortunately, it's all hidden from the airflow as well. So, you know, to do to get anything out of something, you need to have airflow for it. So um, there's there's plenty of ideas out there. I'm sure that people will come up with solutions, but I don't think you could do this one and, uh, and comply with the regulations uh, in the near future, at least. Yeah, like so many things, nice idea, not quite permitted. Thanks very much for your question there, Dave. And just to show that Gary does put plenty of thought into the questions that are asked, we're actually going to revisit a question that cropped up on last week's show about using the hybrid system for a reverse gear. This is something you've been thinking about, isn't it, Gary? It is something I've been thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I like all good ideas, and I think that is a very good idea. The big problem you'd have with it at the moment, I suppose, is the fact that by using the MGUK to... Uh, at the moment, the MGUK drives the engine. Um, or it adds power to the engine through a gear um, and that then increases the power of the engine because you got the the uh, normal atmospheric engine uh, horsepower plus whatever power you're putting in from the electric motor so to to get it to go backwards you'd have to drive the engine backwards so basically when you would arrive somewhere and lock up and go off a, you'd have to switch the engine off stop it uh, put the motor into a rearward drive uh, and drive the engine backwards through the transmission to the rear wheels, which is obviously a problem. And I'm not sure there's many engine manufacturers currently that would like to see their engine be driven backwards. I'm sure there's lots of stuff in there that wouldn't like it. Um, that's not to say that it can't be done for, let's say, 2006. If it's if the regulations applied early enough, that's fine. Uh, it also means that obviously then you need the, the, the car to be started up again using the MG UK as a starter, which is currently done so that's not too big a problem um so as i say the, the big thing for me would be the fact that uh just driving the engine backwards for that little bit of reverse might be a bit tricky 
Um, that's nothing to say that you couldn't have an electrical reverse in the in the uh, a motor in the transmission somewhere or in the uh, clutch area that will drive the clutch shaft backwards. Um, there is other ways of doing it. It doesn't have to be a mechanical gear in the gearbox, I suppose you might say. It could very easily be something else. Um, so there's a bit of lateral thinking there. Good idea, but it might need a little bit more research than I initially thought. Well, if you'd like Gary to tackle your question in the future, do send an email through to podcast at com, and don't forget the hyphen, the hyphen race.com, either as a voice note or as a written question, and Gary will do his best to answer it. Well, as always, thanks very much for your insight. We'll be back next week for another episode, so stay with us on the Race F1 Tech Show for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.